Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, in this episode, we're going to talk about clinical interviewing strategies. And to do that, we're honored to have with us once again, Dr. Sean Christopher Shea. Dr. Shea is the founder and director of the Training Institute for Suicide Assessment and Clinical Interviewing. He's a widely respected innovator in the fields of suicide prevention and clinical interviewing. He's the author of seven books and numerous articles, including The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment and the textbook Psychiatric Interviewing the Art of Understanding, now it's third edition. It was selected by the British Medical Association as the 2017 first prize book of the year in psychiatry. Dr. Shea Sean, thank you for joining us once again on Let's Get Psyched. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought we could start things off with, um, tell us a little bit about your history in training folks and, cl and clinical folks uh, with interviewing strategies. How did you get into it and, and, and how, does, how has it evolved? Yeah, actually, uh, that was back in my uh, residency um, uh, training. First of all, I loved psychotherapy, and so uh, and uh, have continued throughout my life to do psychotherapy, and um, uh, but also found that uh, I thought that clinical interviewing uh, overlapped a lot with psychotherapy, but clearly had some tasks in it that were different. Uh, and of course, it depended upon the, the psychotherapy as well. And there I was surprised to discover that the program I was in, which was a really uh, an outstanding program, I, I loved the program, had no course on clinical interviewing. I mean, I had courses on anything else you could possibly think of. <laughs> I mean, I had courses on probably five different styles of psychotherapies, um, uh, obviously on diagnosis, and, but an actual course dedicated purely to interviewing, I did not. Uh, and by the way, that, that's something that's not un, unusual, actually, I've discovered in uh, the years since in different disciplines. There's often not courses on it, uh, et cetera. But uh, in a very unusual uh, chief residency in that I could um, – it wasn't a pyramid where there's one chief resident. Everybody could be a chief resident. But if they wanted to be a chief resident, what you had to do is you had to say that you're going to work on a single unit – and focus on a single topic, and you had to do one of two things, either develop a research project out of it or focus on it clinically. And if you chose to focus on it primarily clinically, and this I found to be a fascinating thing. This instance, this was Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic in the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, this was a fascinating thing they did. They said if you don't want to do research and you primarily just want to do your chief residency, uh, you know, uh, as a clinician and an administrator helping there, you must design a course that you think we should have had that we did not have, and design it in such a way that you think it can be propagated over time. That's fascinating. Uh, so I said, geez, I, I'd, I'd love to be in the assessment center and the ED and be the chief resident there. And I'd love to design an interviewing course for you. Um, so that's where my interest really took off. We de I designed the, uh, you know, it was an 18 session course. Um, 
and it was hour and a half uh, blocks and it has a very multidisciplinary. Um, so all graduate students that swung through. So we had social work grad students, a clinical psych graduate uh, intern. Uh, we had counseling students, I think, uh, family practice residents, um, nursing. And then we had our own uh, staff uh, that would swing through it. Um, and the first half hour would be a didactic discussion about a topic and in interviewing. Uh, such as uh, how do you engage more effectively, uh, how do you structure effectively in a sensitive fashion with time constraints at hand, uh, to how do you uncover suicidal ideation. The second half hour was an actual interview done by one of the participants in front of all of us. Uh, and what was really remarkable is we actually used uh, patients from the ED. And uh, so we would ask a patient who had presented, who obviously we didn't use someone who was agitated or in terrible pain or something, but a, a person who just simply presented uh, and we had triaged them uh, and thought they'd be appropriate. And we, we would tell them that what's going to happen is, is if, if it's okay with them, we were a teaching institute, we're always trying to become better and better. We have this class, we describe the class. We said, would you mind being interviewed for part of your interview in front of this class? Uh, and by the way, if it's awkward for you once you're there, you just stop it immediately. But the nice thing about it, as he said, is the person who is doing the interview will then come down and, and finish the interview with you. In other words, you will get a chance to meet the person uh, before. But I said the other benefit, uh, which uh, might be uh, of value to you, is that um, you will get the input of your care from about 12 different clinicians. In other words, we will discuss what was uncovered. And I'll tell you, it's invaluable sometimes uh, to have somebody from a different discipline. So anyway, uh, that's how that course started. It was wildly successful. Uh, then wrote the first book I did on uh, clinical interviewing in that year and the next year, uh, which was Psychiatric Interviewing the Art of Understanding. I really enjoy that book, Sean. Oh, I've great. been reading it. There's just a lot of good um, ideas in there, great techniques. Um, I'm only on chapter eight at this point, but I've learned so much. Oh, one of the, one of the techniques that really grabbed my, my interest was, um, and made me think differently about interviewing techniques was one of the techniques in your intro, um, where you're talking about the wandering patient and how, when you have a patient kind of you know, going on tangents or maybe more circumstantial, meaning that for listeners, meaning that they're uh, quite verbose in their response. Um, when you have that patient uh, to think about how the interviewer may be feeding that behavior or sure. encouraging that behavior by taking notes on what the person is telling them, despite that despite the fact that they have gone on a tangent and aren't answering your actual right. question by taking notes on that response, you're encouraging them to continue answering in a tangential way or by asking follow-up questions or giving subtle cues like nodding your head or saying, mm -hmm, go on or tell me more. I thought that that was such, um, such a different way to think about interviewing techniques and how our behavior may be um, creating uh, behaviors in our patient that isn't helpful for the interview. Um, let me ask you, our uh, intern, our, our not intern, sorry, our production assistant, Yasmin, she wanted me to ask you, how do you feel 
someone learning psychiatry, you know, maybe a medical student or a resident can develop their interviewing style. How is that done? Oh, well, that's done uh, obviously by trying to, to read about it. Um, anybody that and model whatever you can, watch what people are doing, keeping in mind that people don't always know what they're doing. <laughs> it might be really good to do. Uh, yeah. but they don't know what, that's how we develop some of these techniques. You know, I watched people, as I mentioned in the last uh, podcast, I watched them interviewing, saw what worked. They did not necessarily know that they were using a gentle assumption, uh, had not been mm -hmm. taught that, but we could look at that and say, oh, we can, we can coin that phrase. We can label it. Um, and, uh, anyway, that's really critical. Uh, and also, and then literally, uh, your motivation of, of trying to try techniques uh, and being very open about trying, learn from as many different, um, disciplines. One of the beauties about that course I described was that the, the initial intake, um, it may look different depending upon, uh, what a clinical situation might be, which is, you know, it's an ED intake, say, versus a full intake in a, an assessment center. You obviously don't have as much time in the ED as you do in a full intake. Um, but I don't believe it should look different among the disciplines. In other words, the initial intake is the initial intake, and there's an art to doing it, and it's a flexible art, and it's not that everyone does this like a, a cookie cutter by any stretch, but there are, and you know, a clinical psychologist at the end of that hour should have achieved the same thing that a social worker uh, should have or that a psychiatrist should have. So the techniques are broad-based, which is why that textbook, although it's called psychiatric called psychiatric interview and it then says a guide for psychiatrists psychologists social workers whatever by the way just a, a short aside about that the original title i wanted for that book was called clinical interviewing uh and the publisher at that time uh i literally ended up going into their their corporation because it was a debate because he, he literally did not want it called that uh and so he ultimately said i will not call that that we're a psychiatric publishing house uh, and he said, you can't be right. They don't, don't all do the same type of interview. And I said, they're all doing intakes. Uh, and I said, yeah, and it's the same. So anyway, um, he forced me to call it psychiatric <laughs> interviewing. It's actually a book about clinical interview. So you're saying that you feel these techniques are broadly applicable in the field of social work, nursing, oh, absolutely. right? Yeah, because I've seen your work referred to in uh, communities of social workers and nurses as well. Um, I have another question for you since, yep. again, talking about how your career has really been in teaching, interviewing techniques. What are some of the things that are excited to you in the training of um, clinical interviewing? Uh, that it can be trained. Uh, that is probably the most exciting thing uh, about it. And the reason that's exciting is, is that it can make a difference. I honestly believe that it can make us better healers. Um, I believe that it can uh, ultimately save lives. Uh, in the last podcast, we were talking about, you know, um, helping someone who's truly intending to kill themselves within 24 hours or a week to actually share that with say that I think you can save someone's life on the spot there, but you can save uh, lives in many, many different arenas and transform lives through your clinical interviewing, uh, generating hope, 
um, an incredibly powerful thing. Uh, in, improving uh, people's interests in the psychotherapy you've chosen so that they actually do, for instance, the homework in a, say, solution-focused work or cognitive work, uh, or they utilize medications effectively or help you to understand what medications uh, most, you can save lives that way. Um, so uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, tremendously exciting to me. And because the field, it is very interesting that the field of psychotherapy tended to understand much faster that there are techniques. You know, uh, Aaron Beck knew there were techniques in cognitive therapy, and so does Judy Beck. Uh, and uh, But in the field of clinical interviewing, it was slow to pick up on that. Because oftentimes I think people thought that it was the same as psychotherapy. And although it has many overlaps, it has distinct differences as well. I, I really like that you're using the language save lives. I think aside from it being true here and and the you know the trauma that it causes um, us when one of our patients yeah. you know passes and 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 the loss of of life and the loss to their community and the likelihood of their that that their friends will now be all of the people who are around them will now be more likely to die by suicide i think there's another thing that i just want to highlight that that which is like for burnout prevention i think we may have this shyness about directly stating the fact that we're saving lives and we're very quick to be hard on ourselves when we do something wrong, but we don't necessarily as a field have that positive self-talk of, Hey, we're actually saving lives right now. It almost feels corny to say it. And I think it's so important to just say that. Um, and I, I don't use that phrase very often and hearing you use it with that and owning it like that really inspires me to, want to use it and use it in front of my medical students oh, that's great. and residents. Um, it's what we're doing. And I think if we rewarded ourselves by, for that more often by kind of sharing it, um, that would be- uh, really, Al, that's really uh, great stuff to hear because I couldn't agree more with you. And the other thing is, is that we're healers and you, you don't hear people say that very often, uh, that that is what, that's what we, uh, we do for a living. Um, and when I add, you know, I give lots of talks and, um, no matter where I go, whether it's, uh, talks in the U S or, uh, abroad or whatever, I often end a talk at, and I often do full day, uh, workshops. And, uh, at the end of the day, I like signing off to an audience by saying to them and, and trying to do exactly what you just said we should be doing, which is I turn to them and I, I say, well, I hope that the techniques that we studied today, uh, may be of use to you in, in helping to, to save a life and, the bottom line of this is, is that all of us, all of you in this room are on a really special mission. Uh, and it's a, a great mission. And the bottom line is, it's nice to wake up in the morning and know the world's a better place because you're in it. And that will be true with all of you. Yeah. This, this feels like that humanism in medicine, that I think is one is particularly impressive because you're in the field of suicidology, which is such a, a dark field. But also, you know, I think there's this constant kind of battle and not that not that cynicism doesn't have its place and gallows humor doesn't have its place. But I think there's this battle in medicine between burnout and cynicism versus humanism. And it's nice to see someone. I mean, you know, as I said in the, in the, the last episode, like I, I really feel that this technique comes couched in this goodwill and beneficence. Oh, thanks. This kind of holistic 
approach that you're bringing. And uh, I worry that that, uh, that that kind of is disappearing some from medical education. And it's nice to, it's nice to see you kind of like um, wholeheartedly bringing that to. Oh, thanks. Doing. By the way, we at another point a little bit later, we're, we're talking about a thing called the medication interest model, which is all about that, which is how that you humanize this therapeutic alliance. But, you know, when I work with just physicians uh, in general or medical students, um, uh, you know, uh, I can safely turn to someone, maybe they're an experienced clinician of 10 years or whatever, you know, and I can say, you know, we can all, all turn to ourselves. And if we say that we haven't cried with a patient or a family member, you need to really think about that because there's times to cry with patients and family members. Uh, and that's uh, we're human, they're human. Uh, and yeah, I, I think we have to keep that alive. And and unfortunately, two things have been very problematic. The, med the electronic medical record is a mess. In my opinion, it's still a mess. Uh, it's not done what it was intended to do. The original idea was great, which is you take notes the way you normally take notes. When you're done, instead of writing them up, when nobody can read your writing, uh, or instead of taking all the time to dictate it, you will type it up. It'll go into a medical record as a typed note. It's much more readable. It can then be sent anywhere in the country as long as the person has agreed. Instead, you know, I, I think that, you know, administrators got the idea, wait a second, <laughs> wait a second. We can save an immense amount of money by getting rid of the typists. So where have the clinicians do this in the interview? It was never meant to do that originally. Uh, and uh, that has caused enormous problems. I mean, you have people. I had someone tell me the other day, a nurse, and she had said uh, she's a huge proponent of the case approach. And, and she had said, yeah, the other day I was talking to an ED. Uh, I think it was a, a, a nurse clinician, um, a psychiatric. And she said, the no, I think it was just a regular uh, ED nurse. And she said, yeah, I use the... Um, the ASQ, uh, which is a screen for suicidal ideation, she said, she said, she, I watched her, she, she pulls it up on a computer and she wasn't even looking at the patient while she asked the questions about suicide. And, you know, this is, I just think it's, I just can't believe we're doing this. And I always, with, with suicide, I always turn to people and I say, you know, to mental health professionals, because it's again surprising how many will use. Uh, forms when talking about suicide with people when they don't know whether this is a highly suicidal patient or not. That highly suicidal person, they want a human in the room with contact and care. Uh, you know, I think it was Peabody, um, uh, a physician who said the secret to care of the patient is in caring for them. And um, but so it, it's just so important to recognize that we have to make that human contact with people. And I think that's sometimes uh, missed. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking to Dr. Sean Christopher Shea about clinical interviewing strategies. Tosha, you have a, a question. So I definitely want to get to the medication interest model, but along the lines of this conversation, it reminds me of something that you and I talked about, Sean, which was the lethality of the moment in the psychiatric yes. interview. Could you say a oh, couple yeah. words about that, and then we'll talk about the yeah. medication interest I model? Think Sort of what Al was also alluding to, and it's a, a it's an offshoot of that, which is that uh, once again, growing up in a surgeon's family, you know, it's very apparent 
I always tell people, if you ever watch the movie MASH, you get an idea what an OR suite looks like. Now, that was unusual because there was multiple surgeries going on in one room uh, in a MASH unit. But I said, yeah, surgeons, they do a lot by habit, and there can be joking just like you saw in MASH. And I said, but as soon as there is something that's going on in that room that's a problem, just like on MASH, I said, everybody is one hundred percent concentrating on what they're doing i mean and that's because i said surgeons know that it's life and death they know it they understand that even when they're scrubbing their hands for 10 to 15 minutes it's even though they might be joking with the guy beside them they know that the reason they're scrubbing their hands is if this guy gets an infection he may die um mental health professionals i think don't always think that way and i think it's partially it's one thing for the surgeons because I, you can't miss it <laughs> people die <laughs> on the table if you're a physician you've seen death you've been around death Actually, there's a probably a chance that you've made a decision that partially led to a patient's death uh, by a mistake uh, in your judgment or whatever. But for mental health professionals in a generic sense, including physicians, the um, it's easy to forget that this is life and death stuff. Uh, and you never know that patient who walked in into your outpatient clinic how suicidal they are or whether they're having suicidal thought. And that very patient can walk out of there and that night kill themselves. That would not be the norm. It's unusual, but it can happen. Uh, and I think that part of it is a denial of mental health professionals because it's very scary uh, to have uh, a person die, the threat of a person dying by a suicide. It's uh, easy to not think about it. It might be hard to push oneself to think about it during every interview when you're in doing an intake with someone. But I do think you have to, when you're raising the question, be saying the reason I'm raising this question is not to fill out this form. It's because I don't know if this person's having suicidal thought. And if they're having it, I don't know how intense it is right now. Um, and we do know that, you know, there's, um, I mean, you can go to primary care as a perfect example of this. We know that, you know, close to 40% or more of people who die by suicide have seen a primary care physician or nurse or another medical specialist within a month. But the, to me, the much more startling and eye-opening uh, one was that there's a large study uh, that came out of, I think it was the Ford uh, group, um, where they had 10,000 uh, uh, people who died by suicide. They had a huge end because it's a true self-managed care uh, system or managed care system. So everyone had to go to the same uh, pharmacy, blah, 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 blah. But they had tremendous records. And what they found was that one out of five uh, patients who die by suicide in their records of the 10,000 deaths had seen a physician or a nurse within one week of death. One week. One in five. It's 20% of all those suicides. Um, so, yeah, people, you're sitting in the room with people who are thinking of killing themselves. And uh, if we can get people to uh, understand that, it's a wonderful, it's very exciting when I talk to primary care docs, who, by the way, love the case approach. Uh, and they love the validity techniques. Uh, it's very exciting because we can say to ourselves, oh, my gosh, if we just learn to use these techniques, we may save thousands of lives a year in primary care and medical settings. I actually think that's the other aspect of what we're hoping with this online course is that medical and nursing students will take this thing. Because if you see it done, one of the things that people take away by watching someone do the case approach that is irrevocable, they will not forget it, is 
how conversational and direct it is because they're watching me do it. You know, it's a very common comment. Um, in fact, they're using it in a nursing school, undergraduate nursing at the University of Wyoming. Uh, and uh, the professor there said, one of the students had commented, she said, I can't believe how directly you can talk to people about their suicidal plans. Uh, she said, but I'll never forget it. And, and I can see how it saves people's lives. So that's all exciting stuff, I think. It's an opportunity. Let me ask you, oh, sorry, my dog's whimpering in the background. That's Genji. Um, I want to ask you now, let's pivot to the medication interest model. Can you give us some tips out of that book that you recently wrote? Yeah, that's a book for medical students and nursing students about all meds. By the way, if you want to see it, it's just it's the medication interest model. It's abbreviations MIM, so it's just called the MIM in the clinical interviewing literature. If you do want to see it as a mental health professional applied to uh, our field, mental health, in the psychiatric interviewing textbook, there's about a 60-page chapter on the MIM applied in psych and psychiatry. But I'm not going to be talking just about psychiatry right now it's because that's the meme is for all meds. But uh, the, the main thing about the meme is the idea that helping uh, prescribers and also case managers if they're following people for, uh, for meds uh, and also clinical pharmacists. But the idea that it's so important to understand that people are, they're making the choice. It's a choice-based model. And it does away with terms like adherence, compliance, all of which meta communicate that at some level, the patient's doing something they shouldn't be doing. You know, they should be, you know, complying or they should be adhering. It sounds like it's scotch tape. I mean, that's ridiculous. I hate that phrase, uh, adherence. Instead, all we say is it's the only thing that's important is choice. The patient has to decide whether they want to take this med or whether they're going to stay on the med. They might even just take the med because you're telling it at first, but they won't stay on it unless they make the final choice. And we say, so the issue is not that the person is doing something wrong. We personally believe that with rare exceptions, I mean, there could be someone who's trying to be oppositional with you because of characterological problem or a problem in the relationship. But The vast majority of times, we truly believe that when people don't take medications, they don't take it for a very, very good reason. It doesn't mean that it's ultimately a correct reason, but it's a logical, good reason. And we uh, say, uh, so how do people decide to take meds? By the way, I've given probably 150 talks on the MIM to various mental health professional and primary care physicians. To introduce this thing, I always just say, Everybody just think for me and forget your patients and just tell me why you take a medicine. And uh, they invariably come up with three things. One, they have to think there's something wrong. They all say, oh, I wouldn't take a medicine if I didn't think there was something wrong and I really needed it. Two, they have to think the medication is a reasonable way to do it and perhaps the best way to do it. And three, they have to believe the pros outweigh the cons. If people don't believe those three things, they won't take a medicine. But Not only that, if you don't believe one of those things, you won't take a medicine. (laughs) That's the thing that really helps the audience to get it. No, I wouldn't take a medicine if I didn't think there was something wrong. No, I wouldn't take it. I thought it hurt me more than helped me. Why would you? Why would your patient? And why would you expect your patient to do that if they don't believe one of these three things? So the issue is, is to... There are specific interviewing techniques that help the clinician learn what the patient's beliefs are in each of those things that we call the choice triad. And then when you uncover where they are at, there are interviewing techniques for figuring out, one, they might be right, 
this medicine is not good for them. Uh, or two, if it looks like it's still good for them, then you can find out what the roadblock is. What's the belief that's making them not do that? Uh, to put this in a, a very simple context, um, a kid with the first break of schizophrenia at 17, or how many of those kids think there's something wrong with them? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say zero, but it's close to zero. Um, so why would we think that if we turn to them and say, I want you to take this medicine, which I need to just tell you that it might make your tongue stick out like a lizard for the rest of your life. Now, we got some meds that might help with that, but I can't care. Why would anyone take that drug? if you didn't think there was something wrong. So the issue is training techniques of trying to find out where this person is at and then trying to find out, is there something wrong that they want help with? They don't necessarily even have to agree that they have schizophrenia. They may agree they don't like voices or they don't like they end up in the hospital all the time, but they have to decide there's something wrong they want changed. Um, and one thing that's sort of problematic uh, sometimes is to watch clinicians try to debate step three with someone, try to convince them the pros outweigh the cons when the patient doesn't even think there's something wrong. It's sort of senseless. <laughs> They're not going to take it. So you got to look at the first step, help transform that, move to the second step, transform that, move to the third step. But you know, we have little time now, but I can tell you there's a, there's a hundred different techniques in that particular book uh, on how to address these and transform these moments. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we discussed clinical interviewing strategies with Dr. Sean Christopher Shea. Thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Just call me Sean. <laughs> thank you. It was an honor. Thanks. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Doctors Toshi Yamaguchi and Al Atkins. If you want to learn more about Sean's books and trainings that are available, please navigate to suicideassessment.com. If you have comments or questions or suggestions for the show, you can also write us to at, at getpsychedonkucrgmail.com and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our podcast producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.